Good morning, fam. So good to be together in the presence of the Lord. Do you feel him moving? God is up to something, and I want to be all in. How about you? Yeah. I believe it was D.L. Moody. He used to say this quote over and over that the world has yet to see what God can do through a man, and I'll add, and a woman whose hearts are fully yielded to him. The world has yet to see. And I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those. And I want to throw open the doors of my heart and say, Lord, have your way. Whatever you need to do in me, do it. I don't want to be in the way of what you're doing. I want to be a part of it. And I really sense that God is giving us an invitation as a, as a people and as a community uh, to be a part of that. Well, my name is Gerald Coleman. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Um, and uh, we've been in the book of Nehemiah taking this journey, uh, watching Nehemiah, this guy who had, had a burden for his homeland, the people of Jerusalem were in exile. Nehemiah, his heart was broken by the Spirit of God. He began to pray and began to respond to that burden that was placed on his heart. And God released him, gave him favor with the king who was ruling over his people, saying, hey, go ahead and do everything the Lord has put in your heart to do. And so we've been watching Nehemiah, this man on mission, galvanize a, a group of people to be on mission, and they were rebuilding a wall. We're going to be taking a look at chapter 7 through 9, more specifically chapter 8. Um, and uh, so if you have your Bibles, please turn there. And I want to speak a little bit on the theme of revival. Revival. Because here, God is doing something with his people and with his city. And in chapter 6, they finish the wall. The wall is completed, but it's not enough. Because there's no people living within the walls. And I believe that the key to reviving a city is reviving a people. I'll say it again. The key to reviving a city is reviving a people. And so in chapter 7, we see Nehemiah begin to go through a list of, of genealogies, and he's saying, wait a minute, okay, we've got to get God's chosen people back in this land. And so he's going through and tracing the genealogies and the heritage, because this is important because of God's covenant people. Who were the people that were a part of the exodus? Those who had came out of slavery under the leadership of Moses and then Joshua and were led into the promised land, who were those people? And we've got to make sure that the right people are in the land. And so he begins to say, okay, you know that God gave us commands that we were not supposed to marry those who were not a part of our nation. And the reason for that stipulation is because those of other nations served other gods. And God was saying to them that if you go after husbands or wives from other nations, 
your heart will go after their gods. And we see this reach its climax under the kingship of Solomon. Solomon took to himself not just one foreign wife, but many foreign wives, and not to mention the tons of concubines. But these women turned the wisest man to, uh, to have ever lived. These women turned his heart away from God to go after other gods. And it was under that watch where it was the kingdom split in two, and eventually they fell into exile. And God told them, hey, when you're following my commands, when you're obeying my commands, you're going to be blessed. You're going to prosper as a nation. You're going to find my favor resting upon you. But if you disobey me, the opposite is going to happen. These curses are going to come upon you. You're going to be driven from your land. And so under Nehemiah's watch, Nehemiah leads the people in repentance. He repents and begins this movement of God bringing his people back into this land. And so if you are there in chapter 8, I'll begin reading at verse 1. And so they have all of these people inside the walls now. And this is the first time that they are gathering, sort of like we're gathering here this morning. So listen to the words of this. As we begin reading in verse 1, it says, Ezra reads the law. One more thing. Ezra is a book also that has taken place at the same time as Nehemiah. As Nehemiah is rebuilding the city, the walls of the city, Ezra is the priest or the scribe who is rebuilding the temple, the worship. While he's rebuilding the temple, he finds these scrolls of the law of God, the Torah which they had not had because they had been in exile. So, you know, if I go to your house, well, let's say, if you come to my house, you're sure to find three, four, five Bibles. You might find one in Hebrew. You might find one in Greek. Well, in this time and in this day, they, they did not have the luxury of having their own personal scroll. They didn't have their own mobile device where they can just look up online and see what does God command. So imagine these chosen people of God, they have been dispersed in exile for years without the commands of God. I'm sure there's bits and pieces that they have, may have remembered as a part of oral tradition, but when Ezra finds these, the first thing he does is he says, okay, we all gotta come together and we gotta hear what the Lord commands. We've gotta hear the word of the Lord. Now picking it up, in verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midnight. From early morning until midnight, midday, I'm sorry. Before the water gate from early morning until midday. They still got us beat, right? Because y'all gonna be expecting me to have you out of hand a little bit. But they were going from early morning 
until midday. But we're talking about people who are hungry. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseiah. I'm not speaking in tongues. This is in the book here. <laughs> on his right hand, and Pedadiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, and Hashpadanah. Hashpadanah. <laughs> okay, that time was tongues. <laughs> Zechariah and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Just imagine that. He opens the book and everybody stands. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen. See, they like to talk back too. Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbethai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now I want to go down. Yeah, let's keep reading. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. What's happening here? These people have discovered again the words of the Lord. And imagine they had been living among other nations not knowing clearly what the Lord's commands or norms for their lives were. And I imagine some of them giving in to the culture around them, believing like, this is the right thing to do. Oh, well, this is the way that they do it, so we're going to do it this way. These are the customs of the day, so let's just join in with what they're doing. And so as they hear the word of the Lord proclaimed, all of a sudden, their hearts are pricked. And they begin to weep because they realize, wait a minute, we're so far from what the Lord has commanded. How did we ever get here? 
How did it come to this? It's interesting, when you disobey in the small things, they open the door for us to get further and further away from what the Lord wants us to be and do. And what's important about these commands, because when they were given to Moses, Moses, the people of Israel, the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. They had the mentality of slaves. They had been in bondage. Uh, They didn't know exactly what the Lord required of them. And so it took for them to have a revelation to know what God desires. And I believe that when we talk about revival or coming to life, revival does not happen without a revelation. What do I mean by a revelation? I mean having truth, the truth of who God is, being revealed and impressed, not just to our logic and thoughts, but to our hearts. Now, if you were to look at Psalm 19, you can jot it down and look at it later. Psalm 19 talks about two types of revelation. There is general revelation, and general revelation is when you can look at created things such as the stars, the trees, the animals, even humankind, and you can say, oh, I know that this just didn't come together. There is a creator. You can look at created things, and the created things tell a story of a creator. We know that we just didn't get here by happenstance. And so that's general revelation when you can look up and you can say, oh, I know there's a God. But then there's something called special revelation. And special revelation is when God reveals himself. And he reveals specific things about himself. Not just that he exists, but what does he like? What doesn't he like? How can you live for him? What's best for you? And so when we look at the law of God, we're looking at special revelation. But in the New Testament, we get a better form of special revelation, where the Bible tells us that the word became flesh. So Jesus becomes the living word. So now we can't say, I I misunderstood what was on the page, but when we look at the life that Jesus lived, we can make no mistake about it. And so in order to be a people who are revived, who wants the heart of God, we have to come back to the word of God. The word of God, because the word reveals God. And I believe that the enemy works double time to keep our minds from receiving that revelation. I should open my notes here. In 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter and the third verse, it talks about this. It says, if our gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those who are lost. It says, because the God of this world has blinded their minds. Why? He doesn't want them to get the knowledge of God. And when I'm talking about the knowledge of God, I'm not just talking about knowing about him. I'm talking about knowing him. Knowing him. Satan does whatever he can to keep us from knowing him, 
from having an intimate, personal relationship with him. And so when the people, when they hear the word of God being read, they begin to weep. Because revelation, it brings sorrow and it brings joy. You know, the joy part is, oh, I'm so glad that I know now. The sorrow is, I wish I would have known it earlier. I wish if I would have known this a week earlier, I would have been all right. But thank God that he reveals it in time. And so Ezra, basically what he's doing is they're, they're having a Bible study. They're having some preaching. He's reading from the Torah and the people are hearing it. And as they're hearing it, it's pricking their heart and they begin to weep. Then you have priests, the Levites who are there, and they're explaining what's being read saying, this is what this means. This is what this means. And you can imagine them saying, oh, wait a minute. That means I've got to change the way I'm living. Yeah. <laughs> and that takes some humility. It takes some humility. And it's important to remember that, you know, you can't change everything at once. But little by little, as we receive the revelation of God's word, what the Holy Spirit is bringing to our heart, we step into those things. And we begin to become changed and transformed more into his image and his likeness. You know the scripture in Romans 12, 1, 2. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, I beg of you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and other translations which says, which is your act of worship. Then it says this, do not be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Now, why is this good for us? Because we don't live in Nehemiah's time. But it's important because just like the people gathered in Nehemiah's day for the first time in a long time, we gather every Sunday. And we gather to hear the word of God, to remember who God is, to receive this revelation so that we can fight against the tension to conform instead of transform. Because it happens so easy. You and I, we live in a world where we are, I mean, we are overdosed with media on TV, our mobile devices, and there's lots of good things on TV. There's lots of good things on our mobile devices. But we begin to look at these things and maybe the shows that we watch, we look at that and we say, oh, maybe that's, that's the way I should do my relationship. Not knowing that, wait a minute, <laughs> You, you better check it against God's word. Make sure it lines up. And so if we are going to be a people on mission, we must remember that the most valuable thing we have as missionaries is our testimony, is our life. Is our life. And so we want to become transformed. There's an old song that says, change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. 
change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. We want to be people of transformation. And so to be a revived people, we need revelation. Revelation. As a matter of fact, Paul, when he's writing in Ephesians, he says, look, I pray something over you all the time to the church at Ephesus. He says, I pray this over you all the time, that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He says, I want God to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why is that? Because there are so many things that are trying to cloud our vision. And the scripture is clear that a people without a vision perish. What that word vision really means is prophetic revelation. When there is no clear revelation of what God is calling us to or, or what he's asking of us, then we lose our way. But we come here every Sunday, we gather like this. This is why it's one of our essentials because it's the place where we can come and hear vision. What does God want for my life? And so we get that revelation, we get that vision, and it leads us to repentance. In chapter nine, well, before we get to chapter nine, a little bit in chapter eight here, I'm gonna pick up my speed a little bit. I wanna mention this. As they're reading, they, as they're reading, they discover like, oh, wait a minute, we're supposed to be celebrating feasts. And right now, a feast is supposed to be happening, but we didn't know that because we didn't have the law of God. And the feast that they were supposed to be celebrating was the feast of Sukkot or the feast of tabernacles or booths. You may remember the New Testament story when on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus went up with Peter, James, and John, and then Moses and Elijah appeared to him, that, you know, Peter saw this and he was like, Lord, we should stay here and maybe build booths and stay here on the mountain. And Jesus was like, no, 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 no. Well, that's a part of the mystery of the Feast of Sukkot. Now, the Feast of Sukkot, I'll just give you, I can't give you the whole thing, but it's something you can look it up. The information is out there. But what was important about this is it called the people to remember their time in the wilderness when they did not have a permanent dwelling. So they built these booths during the feast and they would, they would spend time celebrating. Some people would sleep in the booth for seven days. Some people would just eat and have feast out in the booth. But the purpose of these booths were to remember that there was a time we didn't have a permanent dwelling. There was a time we didn't have a home and God was our source and sustainer. And so they discover this and they're like, okay, we got to celebrate this thing. And it says in the text that the last time this feast was celebrated, this was a feast instituted by God. The last time it was celebrated was under the leadership of Joshua. It's been a long time, wouldn't you say? And so they begin to practice this. Now, this is important because it goes back to the story. It goes back to the central story of the Old Testament. The people of God had built their lives around the Exodus event, about God delivering his people from bondage and bringing them into the promised land, about the Lord defeating Pharaoh and saying that he is the king of kings and setting his people free. But for us as New Testament folks, as believers in Jesus Christ, we realize that our 
lives are built on the story of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. That once we were a people lost in darkness, but Jesus, through his sacrifice, led us as a people out on an exodus from darkness into his marvelous light. And so these people began to say, hey, we got to do these things to remember who we are. We've got to remember. And so they're continuing to live into the truth that's being revealed. They just don't say, oh, that's what we're supposed to do? That sounds good. All right, peace. No, they say, oh, that's what we're supposed to be doing? Okay, we got to do it. (laughs) We got to do it. And they do it and they live into it. And when we move into chapter 9, we see something happening. It says that in chapter 9, they proclaimed a fast with sackcloth and ashes on their head. And in verse 2 of chapter 9, it says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. (laughs) For another quarter of it, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. They're having some service there, you know. That's, but that's not going through the mundane, you know. That's God really speaking to their hearts. And these people, they begin to confess. And so I want to talk to you a little bit because revelation leads to repentance. Now, I think there's a, a bit of repentance that's been lost in our time. We live in America, and we are a very individualized culture. You know, there is a lot of pride in I didn't need nobody's help. I did it by myself. You know, we, we love that type of thing. Or we like this type of thinking when there's a good message about sin. You know, we hear and we're like, oh, yeah, yep. I know that's for her over there in that fourth row, the fifth seat in, you know. And, and we like to say that's for everybody else. Or, you know, I, I do my thing individually. You know, my sin is my thing but there's a sense of a corporate identity. And so here it says they came together as one man. And so it's important that we realize that we are one. We have a corporate identity. And so they begin, once they begin to respond to God's revelation and his truth, they begin to repent. They begin to confess their sins. And they don't say, You know, they don't just confess for theirs, but they confess even for their forefathers. Now, I know you're like, no, that was, (laughs) that was great, great grandpa Jerry stuff. That wasn't my stuff. You know, he did that. But it recognizes the point that somehow we are all connected. That the things that we do, there's a, a song by Sarah Groves came out a while ago, but she says that generations will reap from her decisions. That's the the gist of the song. She says that by her small decisions, she could sow a blessing or a curse to the next generation. And so I think it's important that we live with that accountability, that right now we're fighting things that our children shouldn't have to fight. 
because we as a people will have crossed over and our children, they can move on to bigger and better things in the kingdom. So, in the spirit of this text, I would love for you all to participate with me in this. Um, I'd love for there to be a, a general confession that we would make together. And at this time, I'm also gonna ask the worship team to come back up here. But confession as we, a people, right? Not just my individual thing, but our, as a community, that, you know what, if we've been called to live over the past few Sundays, we've been spoken to, we've been given God's vision about what it means to live in unity, right? And Jesus himself, he said, the greatest command is, the greatest commands are this, to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And then he said, the second one is like unto it, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We can trace every command and they fit into those two categories. And so God is calling us a people who will be calling us to be a people who will be fully devoted to him, who will love him, but love others as well. And, you know, we don't have to be like the the one guy who asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? You know, no, 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 no. You know who your neighbor is. It's the exact one that you don't want to be your neighbor. That's your neighbor. And what's important about this is that he's given us such a huge call. He says that, he didn't say himself, but he said, you are the light of the world. But how can we be light if we hide our darkness? And so this morning, I would like for you to join me in a time of confession. There's a, a confession that's going to come on the screen, and I'll read it for you because I don't want you to be led into anything that you haven't heard before we say it together. Um, hopefully it comes up here. If it, ah, there we go. And so it says, let us confess our sins. I'll just read it through, and I want you to pay attention to what's being said because when we read it together, I want you to be able to enter into it, all right? It says, let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Can you agree with that? Okay. It says, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. It's just not that we do the wrong thing. It's just sometimes we neglect to do the right thing. And the next slide says, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. The next one. And then it says this, almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. You know, I'm not asking you to do specific things. We all know in our hearts what we need to repent of. But in the spirit of the text, I'm going to ask you to stand 
And we're going to recognize that we have a common identity as a body, right? That we are the body of Christ. Though we are many, we are one. And so we're going to say this together. And then the worship team will lead us in a, a song and we'll sing together. And really, I just want you to throw your hearts open to the spirit of God. Just to say, God, we want to be your people. We want to do that thing for which you've assembled us to do. All right, so with one voice, let's read it together. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen.
if you know that there's God, that he's laying his hand on something in your life. Um, earlier, John spoke about a miracle. If you know that that's you and you need a miracle, I wouldn't hesitate after the service to come and receive prayer. There will be uh, the prayer team who will be here waiting to pray with you and agree with you and believe God and hope for the miracle that you need. It's not something that you came in necessarily asking for. It's what was spoken. And so if it was spoken, why not say, okay, I don't know, but I'm coming. Some of you, uh, as there was prayer happening this morning, you feel like you're in a battle. There's things that you may be battling against and you just need endurance to be able to persevere. Please come and receive prayer. Whatever it is that you need, there will be people here waiting to pray for you. And I want to release this over you as we depart this place. As the people of God, let's remember our identity as spoken by the Apostle Peter. But we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. May we go in peace and may we go in joy, recognizing that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Be blessed.